You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Apple's annual iPhone launch used to make waves in the world of tech. This year, though, apart from the shift in their charging port, there wasn't much to be said. And thanks to China, sales might not be the only thing that Apple has to worry about. And the first edition of this one particular motorbike is older than me, my dad, and my grandma. Having barely changed much since, it is still much loved by the Indians. But what makes the Royal Enfield Bullet so special? First up, though. Li Shangfu was appointed as China's defense minister in March. Jeremy Page is The Economist's Asia diplomatic editor. He is also a member of the Central Military Commission, which has seven members, including Xi Jinping, who heads it, and controls the armed forces. His role as defense minister was primarily to be responsible for military relations with other countries. Prior to becoming defense minister, he had a long career in development and procurement of Chinese weapons technology. He's an aerospace engineer by training. He's had a very respectable career. He is one of China's six top generals, and now he's disappeared. Sorry, what? How does a defence minister go missing? Tell me more. Well, we don't know many of the details, but he hasn't been seen in public since the end of August when he addressed a China-Africa security forum. He then didn't show up to a scheduled meeting with Vietnamese officials on September the 7th and 8th, and he's missed a couple of other scheduled meetings since. Now, Chinese officials have officially blamed his absence, at least from that meeting with the Vietnamese officials, on health condition. And since late last week, there have been reports that he has, in fact, been detained for questioning. Some of those reports citing American intelligence officials, others quoting other sources. But the Chinese government has not acknowledged that. But if it does prove true that he's been removed, That'll be the first time in several years that someone on the Central Military Commission has been ousted. And it'll be the first time in much longer since a serving defence minister fell from grace in such a way. Which leaves everyone searching for reasons. Why might Lee have gotten sacked, assuming that he did? There are lots of potential explanations, and I should preface all this by saying, you know, he is still in his role officially, and he hasn't been officially accused of any wrongdoing whatsoever. But there is 
fairly widespread speculation that it could be linked to some sort of indiscipline. Xi Jinping has launched successive waves of crackdowns on corruption in the armed forces in particular, but also other forms of military and party indiscipline. So one possibility is that it is connected to another scandal involving China's rocket force, which controls the People's Liberation Army's conventional nuclear missiles. Its share of the military budget has been growing rapidly in recent years because China is upgrading its nuclear arsenal. And the commander of the rocket force was removed from his post in July, along with the political commissar of the rocket force. Uh, nobody in that case has been officially accused of, of doing anything wrong. But again, there's widespread speculation that um, it's connected with corruption because big military projects have often led to embezzlement and kickbacks in the past. Now, there is also a possibility that with Li Shangfu, the Chinese defense minister, it could be connected to his role in the Central Military Commission's equipment uh, development department, um, because that also has an enormous budget. And in the past, there have been a lot of cases involving embezzlement, kickbacks and other forms of corruption in that field. That said, could be something completely different. Could be disagreement between Xi Jinping and, and Li Shangfu or a breach of military or party discipline, but without an official explanation from the Chinese government, we just don't know. Jeremy, how unusual is this? Well, in the, in the last few weeks, not that unusual because uh, we had quite a similar case involving the foreign minister, Qin Gang. He went missing in June. And then the Chinese government suddenly announced that he was being replaced in July. And in both cases, Chinese officials wouldn't really talk or give a clear explanation of what had happened um, in the immediate days after they disappeared. There have also been some other senior military officers who've either been removed from their posts or who have disappeared in recent weeks. Earlier this month, we learned that the president of the PLA military court, who has the rank of major general, had been removed from that post. He'd only been doing that for eight months, so that was also highly unusual. So altogether, we've had at least four generals and one foreign minister who've been suddenly removed from their posts in the last three or four months. What do all these firings and disappearances say about Xi's leadership? So that's one of the really interesting things about these cases, because all of these people would have been personal appointments by Xi Jinping, or at the very least, he would have had to approve their appointment. Corruption in the armed forces has been a problem for a long time. It was absolutely rife before Xi Jinping took power. And there were several very high-profile cases of generals or retired generals being convicted of corruption soon after he took over. But he could blame all of those cases on his predecessors because you know, they weren't his appointments. But these people who've recently disappeared or been removed, they were Xi Jinping's appointments. So it either calls into question his own judgment or at the very least the capacity of the system that he oversees to vet uh, senior appointments. And of course, this is all happening as tensions with the United States are, are increasing as China is stepping up its preparations for a potential war one day with the United States over Taiwan. So the stakes are incredibly high. It's certainly going to damage morale within the PLA. It certainly does call into question uh, Xi Jinping's own judgment, and it raises all sorts of questions about what else is going wrong within the PLA. 
So where does all this leave him? How does he look? Well, there are no signs of any organized challenge to Xi Jinping within China. He is so firmly in control of the entire military and civilian apparatus. But I think it's fair to say that the turmoil within the PLA will amplify worries within the broader Chinese elite and amongst many people abroad that he is unable to govern effectively at a time when China is facing a host of very serious challenges, including a slowing economy, mountains of debt um, owed by local governments, an aging population, just to name, name a few. And particularly to Xi Jinping's critics outside China, it's really provided some fodder to undermine Xi Jinping's case that China's political system provides a superior alternative to Western-style democracy. If you look, for example, at the Twitter account of Rahm Emanuel, the American ambassador to Japan, he's been making some pretty snide remarks about this whole saga. At one point, he likened Xi's cabinet to the Agatha Christie novel, and then there were none. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. To learn more about China, listen to our weekly podcast, Drum Tower. From next month, you'll need to subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus to listen to it and to our other specialist weekly shows like Money Talks and Babbage. There'll be new stuff too. A series called Boss Class, a podcast on how to be a better manager and a longer intelligence weekend show. Don't worry, this weekday edition will remain free for everyone. If you're already an Economist subscriber, you don't need to do anything. But if you're not, come closer and listen up. You can get a year-long subscription for half price, about $2 a month, if you sign up for Economist Podcast Plus before October 17th. So come on, you know you want to. Just head to our show notes to find out more. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. When Steve Jobs, then the boss of Apple, unveiled the first iPhone back in 2007, it was a day that reshaped people's lives. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And in the years that followed, every time the iPhone got an upgrade and relaunched, it was a highly anticipated reveal with crowds queuing around city blocks to get their hands on the newest release. But that anticipation has fallen off in recent years. The iPhone 15 launched this month with Apple CEO Tim Cook calling the new product truly incredible. Today, we're pushing what users love about iPhone even further. Though the phone barely caused a ripple, let alone a splash. Advancements include a new button, a USB-C charging port, and mild advancements for the camera. The most exciting development, if you ask me anyway, is that it now comes in pink. But it's a threat from elsewhere rather than a lack of fancy features that will have Mr. Cook worried. 
The launch came with all the usual fanfare, but on the actual day, Apple's stock price fell by almost 2%, which wasn't a kind of usual reaction. Guy Scriven is The Economist's US tech editor. And the reason for this isn't because of the iPhone itself, really. Demand for the product still seems pretty high. But the problem is that the launch of the new iPhone 15 was foreshadowed by the launch of a smartphone by Huawei, which is a big Chinese tech firm. And why should Apple maybe be nervous about Huawei's phones? Well, at the end of last month, with no forewarning at all, Huawei announced what they call their Mate 60 Pro, which is their latest smartphone. It was kind of an instant hit. It sold out, I think, in two days. And this is because it was the first Chinese-made smartphone that can use 5G networks. And it can do this because it has a particularly advanced semiconductor inside, which is made by SMIC, a Chinese chip-making national champion. And all this feels like a kind of threat to Apple sales in China. In the last kind of year or so, Huawei's share of smartphone sales has almost doubled to about 13%. Okay, this does actually sound like quite a threat for Apple. The competition from Huawei probably is a bit of a threat. And unfortunately for Apple, the bad news didn't end there. A few days after Huawei launched their new phone, news broke that some Chinese government departments and some state-owned firms might be trying to kind of ban iPhones. And so investors are basically worried that this signals a new battle for Apple in China. And there was a 6% drop in Apple's share price that week, which is the equivalent of losing about $200 billion in market value for Apple, which is a kind of staggering amount. Isn't that quite a big reaction to bureaucrats in China maybe not using the iPhone? Yes, or in effect it is. If a ban was actually going to take place, the overall effect of it would be pretty small. Analysts think that only a small fraction of China's 7 million or so public officials can actually afford iPhones. So that's a very small fraction of Apple's overall iPhone sales. But the combination of the rumours... And the information that was revealed about China being able to make 5G chips basically has got investors worried about an escalation in the tech trade war. So they're worried that the possible ban may signal that China's officials are kind of clamping down or will clamp down in other ways on American technology being sold in China. Uh, And they're also worried that the fact that China can now make 5G high-performance chips will force America's hand and mean that the American bans get even stricter and more severe. And that would basically result in a drop-off in the extent to which American firms are able to sell into China. Okay, so a tit for tat in the realm of chips and semiconductors. What does that mean for the mobile phone market more broadly? Well, one of the impacts it has on the mobile phone market is through the supply chain. So when the news of the ban was revealed, it wasn't just Apple's stock price that fell. It was the stock price of lots of the companies that make components that go into the iPhone. So these are companies like Skyworks and Qualcomm who who make other types of chips that go into Apple's products. 
And there may also be other effects of the Chinese-American trade war escalating. So one thing we've seen recently is that Chinese regulators have been dragging their feet when it comes to the approval of big American acquisitions. So in the last month, Intel was planning to buy an Israeli firm called Tower Semiconductors, um, and they had to scrap that essentially because China was taking too long to approve the deal. And so we may see kind of further action from the Chinese along those lines. And then there may be further escalation on the American side of things too. An article recently in the Wall Street Journal basically said that the US government was thinking of extending the ban, which at the moment covers advanced semiconductors mostly, and supercomputers to include the cloud computing players. And that would really escalate the trade wars because that would essentially bring in Alphabet, Amazon and Microsoft into the firing lines. And that would kick off a new phase of the trade wars and cause a lot more damage and a lot more things for investors to worry about. Guy, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks. While most companies chase what's new in order to survive, there are exceptions to the rule. Take motorcycle brand Royal Enfield. That sound you're hearing belongs to the legendary bike, the Bullet. While Royal Enfield has British origins, it's now an Indian-owned brand, and the recently relaunched Bullet stays pretty close to its 91-year-old predecessor. In India, it's a cultural phenomenon for good reason. So the bullet is a fairly long bike. It's generally black, but there are other muted colors that go along with it. If you had seen one in 1932 or 1942 or 1952 or 1962 or 1972, they all really look the same. So it has an iconic shape. There's none of the plastic that there is on a modern sport bike. There's none of the aerodynamics. Tom Easton is our South Asia business and finance editor. All this means they're really very much like they would look in the 30s, but maybe even more importantly, they're much like they would sound in the 1930s. So as the head of Royal Enfield today recently said, you hear a bullet before you see a bullet. And that is more important than you can possibly imagine. So why haven't they changed much since the 1930s? They are a cultural phenomenon on one level, and they are an engineering miracle. So in many ways, they answer a lot of India's problems. You can ride these bikes through anything. People ride them over the most difficult trails of Ladakh. People ride them on beaches. It's often said that every motorcycle in India is an off-road motorcycle because the roads are just so bad and the potholes are so deep. And for Enfields, it just does not seem to matter. You go over the most bone-rattling potholes that you can possibly imagine. Parts may even fall off. There are, and I've been to them, repair shops in every slum in India. And you pull one of these bullets in and somebody has a wrench and somebody has something that's useful. And for some miraculous reason, you're back on your way. So in a country where many things don't work, these really work. And they've gained an iconic stature. People love them both for their 
versatility, their practical nature, their sound, what they signify about you as a person. Just every society sometimes stumbles across something that resonates on all sorts of practical but inexplicable ways. And that's the bullet for India. Okay, you mentioned that lots of people are kind of repairing old bullets, but what are the sales like in India? How many people are actually still buying bullets? The sales are quite interesting. Even though everybody knew that there was going to be a new bullet coming out now, June was the most reported figure, they still sold over 8,000 of the prior model that was due to be improved. People just did not care. And that makes it Royal Enfield's third most largest selling bike ahead of many, many other bikes. And in fact, there is a slightly, slightly different augmentation of the bullet called the Classic that sells 26,000 models a month. And that is by far the best seller for Royal Enfield. And if you put this together, the bullet and the Classic sales, it's about 45% of Enfield's total sales. So it is a staggering hit and it continues to be a staggering hit. And I think you could almost argue that every bullet that has been sold since its inception, I mean, this can't possibly be true, but you often feel that way, is still on the road. So nobody knows how many bullets there are, except that there are millions, and they never seem to go away. Okay, and moving on from the commercial side of things, tell me a bit more about the bullet's cultural impact. You know, often when you see a movie, there'll be things that distinguish a bad guy and things that distinguish a good guy. But often in India, the one thing that is common for the police and the soldiers and the gangsters and the absconding whatever and the person in love is that they all have a bullet. It is reflective of every facet of Indian culture and how some item became present on so many different facets in so many different important ways. I don't think Royal Enfield did that. They couldn't have done that. No company could have created that. It just happened. So it's really important in that way. There are other motorcycles that sell more in India. There are very, very small motorcycles that sell for under $1,000 that sell in the millions per year. And they are transportation and they're just essential for how the country works. But if you ask anyone on one of those motorcycles what they would like to have, most of them would say a bullet or a classic. You know, it is something to be aspired to. In the same way as in some other part of the world, you might want a big home. The one thing about India is a bullet probably is at the limit of what is feasible. You know, people can aspire to them and they can buy them. And they do. It costs about $2,400, which is a lot of money in India, but not an insolvable amount of money. So, Tom, tell us, do you see this hype lasting even further into the future? You know, when you think of popularity of the bullet and how it may continue, you really think, can it go for another century? And, you know, there are a lot of reasons why nothing should last for 91 years, and motorcycles are really going to change in the years ahead. But I think in 1932, no one had any concept that this bike would last as long as it did. I mean, the bike has outlasted the original British company. It was relocated to India, and it has this ability to endure. I don't see this ever really dropping off the scene. And if I could think about one thing I would want to do with a bullet is own one. Tom, I might have to get one for myself, actually. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be on. Thank you.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. And don't forget, next month, we're launching Economist Podcast Plus. Very exciting if you ask me. So if you're not already an Economist subscriber, you have until October 17th to get a year-long subscription for half price. Just about $2 a month. Are you tempted? Follow the link in our show notes to find out more. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.